Hi there, and welcome to the Feeling the Sonic podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Connor. This is the first episode of Series 3, and joining me as my guest is music producer and musician Andy Brook. Andy has produced, engineered, and toured with, amongst others, the likes of Status Quo, Bonnie Tyler, Ginger Wildheart, Uriah Heap, Delamitri, and Travis. He is currently involved in music projects with the bands The Middle Night Men and Rich Raganet and The Digressions. Andy was recently invited to join the 2020 member class of the Recording Academy as a full voting member for the Grammys. That's all to come, but first, here's a quick reminder of what the Feeling the Sonic podcast is all about. Feeling the Sonic is an indie hub featuring news, views and interviews with notable creatives on entrepreneurial lifestyle, health, very much including mental health and original independent music. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify Podcasts or indeed wherever you get your podcast fix. Feeling the Sonic, it's a matter of choice. Time now to say hello to my special guest, music producer Andy Brook. Hi Andy, how are you? Hello Stephen, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be involved. Well, yeah, well thank you very much for joining me on the Feeling the Sonic podcast. It's great to have you on board as a guest. And here we are in the the first week of November. You excited about Christmas? I I just started (laughs) to think about it. It's, It's kind of, it's been a way off, but all of a sudden today... I stepped outside the studio and it was it was freezing cold. And you, you know when you've got that snap of Christmas in the air, yeah. Uh, you just then the onslaught of having to think about what you've got to get the wife and the kids and the aunties and uncles and everybody. Take it's just that yeah. So the, the trauma you, the trauma is upon us. Yeah, but but don't exactly. But don't you don't you find it, it just it just seems to start Christmas seems to start earlier every year. You know we've just got Halloween out of the way. And here we are. And I went, I went to a pub the other day and they had a nativity scene on there. And I thought, what is that doing there in November? You know, there are, there are 12 days of Christmas, none of which are in October or November. It's, it's a little bit previous for sure. Um, but having said that, I've, I've always had this long association with Christmas. One of my very first jobs as a 16 year old, I was working in a, in, a, in a card shop in Sutton High Street birthdays and the christmas music it started in the first week of september that's when we used to have the cassette it was a cassette no. not a playlist it was actually a cassette that they made up in head office so that would be running from the, the first of september so it was anything later than that is is for me is, is a reprieve you know yeah i mean i suppose that i suppose the commercials have to start to kind of get the build up and everything but i mean my view on it is it's just it just seems to go on forever by the time you actually get to christmas you know you're bored with it but um anyway i uh digress and you mentioned your you know, sixteen-year-old self there. So, yeah, Andy Brook, you are so you are a music producer, engineer, uh, musician, pretty much all-rounder um, with the services that you provide. So, I suppose the obvious question to start with is how did how did you get into this space that you, that, that you work in now as a producer? Um, it, it's a bit of a long story, so I'll try and be concise with it. But it, it kind of harks back to I started I started playing guitar about when I was about twelve years old, I guess. And very, very quickly, there was a very big local music scene. So there was a lot of people playing, a lot of bands and so forth. So we'd end up doing gigs. And um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with it, Stephen, but in, in the London Borough of Sutton, there were two theatres back then. There was the Charles Choir, which is which is now again running. And then there was the Seacom Centre. And um, there wasn't actually a programme provided by the council, but the council were very, very supportive to young musicians who wanted to put on their own events. So we used to do a load of those uh, between the Seacom Centre and the Charles Choir. And then very, very shortly after that, there was a, a, a company called Rockstock that got involved. And they started to actually, they would um, they would support bands and, and kind of deal with all the admin side of stuff for them. So they created a real scene. But to, just to fast forward on a bit. So we, I, did, I did a lot of local bands and then I kind of wanted to further my knowledge. Um, and we did a few demos in local studios and, and across London and whatnot. But I kind of didn't understand what this this magic alchemy was that they were doing in the studio. It made no sense to me. And this, of course, was back in the time when we were still very much working with tape machines. Um, so I kind of I kind of veered away from doing band stuff. Um, I tried to get into university to do music, but because I didn't have any formal qualifications in music, I, kind of, I was I was hit with a brick wall there. Mm. Um, and then I managed to get onto a course that kind of split with media studies. 
um, which I stuck with for about a year. But just now, because I had a year's studies of music, I managed to actually get onto a music course, which was more kind of geared towards doing orchestration, mm-hmm. but orchestration with electronics um, in in the, in the sense of doing, using it as an avant-garde uh, composition tool. So we're talking stuff like Stockhausen and Berio and all these kind of 20th century composers. But that was my introduction to recording, actually how to manipulate using um, the computer as a tool for that side of things. Um, so kind of, I, I, again, fast forward. So I finished that degree and I, I left with a degree in composition, but it, it's not a very a very lucrative market to get into. So what I learned in recording skills, I kind of put to, to use very quickly. Um, my parents had a really run-down shed to the side of their house. So I, I spent the summer kind of learning how to how to how to do brickwork, how to do carpentry, how to do electrics. I kind of refurbed the place and turned that into my first studio. So that was kind of the birth of it for me. So I was about 22 and I started recording my own stuff. Um and then very quickly it, it was like I recorded a couple of friends' bands and then that was a word of mouth that their friends got involved, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, because I, I think I mean I know a few people now that have made that transition from from musician into having this intrigue about how it all comes together on a, on a commercial level. Yeah. Uh, there are, I suppose there are a lot of musicians that just basically don't want to know. They just want to do the music, but then you've got people who maybe be a bit more technically minded perhaps and, and are interested in how it all comes together and how the polish, you know, of a demo, for example, you know, gets out there to, to suddenly being, to, you know, to ultimately being played on the radio or wherever. Um, it, Cause it is fascinating, isn't it? You know, what goes into, not just writing a song, but producing a song and, and engineering a song and, and mastering, and the, you know, the actual final, final product, because it is a product, right? Absolutely. I, absolutely. I, I mean, uh, there was somebody, um, a various thing producer that I worked with quite early in my career who kind of explained to me that it's, it's not just a piece of art, it is a product. And it, yeah. it, it, it does, however, it does depend on what your kind of end goal is. If you're doing it, which let's face it, most people don't is, is the honest truth. And when they get into recording products, they want to do something with it. They want to they want to sell it or they want to market it one way or another. So it does become a product. Mm. Um, one thing you just just backtracking a bit. One thing you said there about most musicians. Well, some musicians don't really want to know about the recording process. I think that was very very true back in the day. But now all of a sudden, and and this has been particularly evident during lockdown, that there's this whole convergence whereby if you're a musician, you kind of need to have some idea of recording skills. Yeah. Whether it's just it's just even just Garage Band, um, uh, Audacity on on your laptop or on your on your Mac, um, everyone's doing it, and it's it's yeah. even even at the most basic level. And I think that that's that's really that's really a sign of progression from certainly when I first kind of got into it. Yeah, um, I think I think you're right, and ov- and obviously not everybody, not every musician has the the opportunity or you know. To, to work with a, you know, if, for example, if you're working with a label, well, all that sort of stuff may be laid on for you. But, you know, as a, as a self-releasing artist, you do have to have these skills, essentially, because it is your own business, essentially, and you are responsible for every part of that business, you know, from, from as a musician, right through to the production side of things. So I suppose it's the, it's the finer polish that, you know, you'd need professional services for. But certainly having, having an understanding of how it works and how to record uh, is is a is a is a is a big asset as a musician. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely, and I, I, th- I think one of the benefits of that as well is if you've got time on your side, there's enough tutorial material out there on YouTube and across the internet to actually to make a, a professional product without going to a professional um, practitioner to 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 service it. It's it's you know if if you've got months and months to work on a track, then you, you can do a fantastic job. It's not a problem. The, yeah. the, the the crux is when you're trying to get something rushed out in a week's time. Yeah, um, exactly. So, but I mean, and this is why I'm still in business. It's like everyone has the tools, the skill and the knowledge to do it, or it's at their fingertips, but sometimes they just need somebody else to do it. It's the same yeah. with DIY. It's, it's like we can all paint our own houses, but a lot of the time we choose not to because it's just not our gig, you know? No. Well, especially me. I mean, I don't do DIY, <laughs> mainly because I'm rubbish at it. I know that I'll make a mess of it. So I'd, I'd rather somebody that knew what they're doing what it whatever it is plumbing you know electricity or whatever whatever um i'd certainly go to you know get the experts in i would I don't, i'm one of these people i just um i'd rather get somebody else to do it rather than me have a you know go at it myself because i'd I know i'd mess it up but that's me i think no I, th- I, th- I think you're right and i think there's there's also the financial implication as well it's like if you if you factor in doing a job of a trade of, of any trade this is and how long it's going to take you to do it 
it's like, well, I could have spent that time at work actually earning yeah. money doing what I do yes, and then paid somebody else to do it and it would have been done much quicker and much more efficiently. I agree. And also, and also it wouldn't leak, it wouldn't fall over or it wouldn't Yeah, it wouldn't, like, wouldn't, wouldn't need to be done again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Five minutes later. All right, well, Andy, let me let me take you back. To, let me take you back to where you um, at the, right from the very beginning. Then, so what 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 music was was around at that time? And and as you say, as a guitarist, what what sort of music were you playing? And what what were you into at that time when you first set out? There's 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 a kind of canon that we many guitarists my age went through where you listen to stuff like Cream and Hendrix. Um, there's all this kind of old stuff. Well older uh, school of material that you just you learn as 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 a way of actually learn to play guitar but really what was all the rage back then was the whole grunge scene so um never mind had just come out yeah um and then shortly afterwards we had the black album from metallica so you know those were the things that we were all kind of listening to and learning so for me my my kind of my real kind of um influences back then would be things like soundgarden or alice in chains uh, stone Temple pilots was a great one yeah, yeah, classics. Yeah, so but, do, do you do you think you know, from that early age, do you think you were you were destined for a career in music, or I mean, is is that where you channeled all your energies and your interests? It absolutely was much much to the uh, the concern of my dad at the time. He was like, "What the hell are you doing?" Mm. Um, and in fact, he, for years and years after, he would he'd always be really kind of negative about the whole thing about being in the music industry. It was, it was only when, it, when he, saw, he actually saw me getting paychecks coming through. He's like, okay, I'm still not impressed, but at least you're... you're <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, think, think, I think I was made... From, from the moment I was playing guitar, I was definitely made up. I wanted to, do, I wanted to be in music. Mm. Um, but my attraction to it started much, much way before that. I think I was about eight, eight years old, and my, my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, well, a few years older than me, she, she um, introduced me to uh, Appetite for Destruction. Um, so... I went up to her room, she put the vinyl on, and that's the first time I kind of really heard anything, any kind of music that had all these heavy guitars and screaming vocals. Um, and I was just spellbound, you know, really kind of taken by it. And it was, she left the room. I, I, I'm pretty sure I had that, that album on repeat for hours, just listening through the details of it. So did you have guitar, did, did, I can't remember what you said, did you say that you taught yourself guitar or did you, did you have guitar lessons? No, I taught, I taught myself guitar. So you I haven't you haven't you have an ear then for you know what sounds right and and you know chord progressions and things like that you you can hear that or you didn't need to have somebody sit you down and explain the music theory behind everything to you. No, I think I think I think um, like like many of us who kind of teach ourselves, we look we learn stuff we we, we we learn by roti. So you know we know a track, yeah. we learn how to play that song and this song and that song, and all of a sudden these chord progressions they they all kind of start to to stand out as something that's that's kind of run in the mill. Yeah. So you, just, you learn to navigate your way through the whole, whole kind of the theory of what's going on. If, sorry, that's the wrong wrong word to use because it's not about the theory of it. It's just it's just kind of understand how progressions work. But then, you know, tacitly you're 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 you're, you're kind of digesting the the core syllabus of music theory. So when you actually come to to study that sort of stuff, it's like wow, I already know this. Mm. I just didn't know that I know it. Yeah. Um, so again, like I said, when I, when I went to study music much later on in life. Um, I was really quite, really quite pleased to see that a lot of the stuff that we'd done as teenagers, just just by learning records or, or jamming with each other, yeah. had already become, you know, it, it was it was very relevant to what I was actually about to study. Yeah, yeah, embedded, you know, from those early days, and and obviously when you know the, the background behind it, it all kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's the, the light bulb goes goes off, you know, it's just it's a whole yeah. rich moment. Yeah, but then I think you've got the added advantage of like if you if you come from that background uh, as as a rock musician. Um, you've you've already got a really well trained ear because that's that's your that, that has been your sole tool in learning yeah. how to play music up until that point. Yeah. Um, so is that your genre then? Uh, you're a rocker. I, I do you know what, Stephen. I do everything. I mean that's that's kind of where I was rooted in. But I, I really, I mean, in in terms of what I produce and record, I I, I span all kinds of genres. I, te I tend not to do so much in in the in the world of urban stuff these days. I mean because it's it was it's not really my roots. I feel. Honestly, there's a bit of a generation gap there. I've had students that I taught production to, 20 years my junior, and it's and for them it's kind of that's their vibe. That's that is their yeah. era, their generation. Um, so I, st I stick to guitar-based stuff, but it's not necessarily just rock. I mean, I, I do like singer-songwriter records that I, I get involved with. Um, yeah. 
Let's have, well, I was having a look, which we will come to, uh, discography. There's a very uh, impressive list of, you know, of artists that you've, you've worked there. And I'll name drop, you know, a few people that you, you produced and engineered and toured with them, including like, Status Quo, uh, Bonnie Tyler, Delamitri, Travis. Um, and I quite like uh, the story behind a photo I saw of you with um, Johnny Rotten from, you know, famous with the Sex Pistols, of course. So uh, quite an interesting catalogue there. Yeah, and it's you know what it's it's one of these things whereby I think if when you get involved in the industry, it's there are people who strive to make connections and 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 to to gain accolades by working with this person, that person, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, but I think if you, if you if you get your head down and you just keep on working, these things happen, and you kind of really don't notice it until you sit back and take stock of what's happened to you over a vast period of time. You know. Okay, let's have a listen to a track from one of those artists just mentioned. This is status quo and falling off the world. So many years and knock, knock, knocking on doors, walking backwards on a cold wet thing. You fall, fell on their face, it's easy to ignore. There's a chance that things might go your way. Make the car turn the trick, find the gates to space. Then the wheel roll the dice. I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well, but it's like if you if you if you're always setting yourself goals or signposts of where you want to reach or, or achieve, um, then you're always kind of working towards that, and you're not seeing the, the bigger picture. So I think I've been very lucky in the people that I've worked with, but it, it was never by design. It just happens, and it's just from being out there and and continuing to take on work and just expanding your circle, but yeah, without that's, that's really pushing it. Yeah, that's fantastic, though, Andy. You know, and I think that's, I mean, one of the things that we talk about on the podcast, you know, and the, and the reason I want to talk to people like you is, is that you've kind of gone after what you wanted to do. You know, you, you set your sights on a career in the music industry and the way you've gone about it, and you've been, you know, enormously successful in, in doing what you do uh, and, and obviously still, and still doing it. Um, but my question is, as it, so once you're really established as a producer, how do people find you? Is it literally word of mouth or do you have to go out and pitch to, 
to labels or you know how does it come about where you get an artist in the studio i, I never i've never actually pitched to labels um the, the any work with any work i've had with labels has always come about from actually meeting the artist first or the man or sometimes the management but yeah. usually it's, it's the artist but um as i said right back in the beginning when i first kind of got into it it was, it was all word of mouth but then that that net can only be cast so far because you're kind of working off of off the locality of where you live in yeah um but then i kind of i, I started to advertise a bit there was there i think it still exists but at the time the big kind of go-to for musicians when you wanted to buy equipment or, or hire out studios was was a, a paper called Loot. Don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah. So Loot used to be massive. So if you wanted to buy a new guitar, that's where you look for it. If you wanted to find a rehearsal room, if you wanted to find a guitar player for your band or a drummer, anything, you just look in Loot. So I put an advert in that, and then all, all of a sudden I was getting loads and loads of calls. Um, and I was I was still very much based in my hometown at that point. I was based in Wellington. Um, and one of – and it just – these these – it's this ever-increasing circle. So somebody I'd never met before answered the advert. They were based in Southwest London. They came over, they did, they did a few tracks. He said, I'm going I'm to come in, uh, I'm going to bring my other band in. And I was like, okay, all right, cool. So the other band came in and um, the other bands uh, were, were a much, much bigger name. Um, and at that time, my, my, the studio that I'd, I'd refurbished, like in my parents, um, that in, in their garage, Mm -hmm. uh, the whole area was being earmarked for redevelopment so i was going to be moving very shortly turns out the drummer that we just had in he had a studio up in denmark street in london and he said look we, we're building we're building this space and we need someone to come in and, and equip it and run it as our own studio so would you be up for doing it i was like well i'll have a look and then when, when i got to see it um the i mean the location is perfect it's right bang in the middle of london top of the road um and the space itself was was huge and he gave me a superb deal in, in terms of rent so it was a no-brainer. Um, but what I, what I soon found out um, was by moving to central London, the my connection, my network, just it blew up. It just it literally exploded. Yeah. It's not only are you working with the people that you, you, you booked in with on a daily basis, but in the middle of, say, Denmark Street, you've got all the music shops. And it's kind of, it was at the time, and, and hopefully will be again with this new redevelopment that they're doing there. It was at the time, it was a mecca for, for visiting musicians from all across the world. Yeah, so it's that, iconic, isn't it? Denmark Street with you know, absolutely. you know, music, say music shops and you know, particularly you know, guitar guitar stores and things. Um, you know, it, all all independent traders. Um, you know, and it had that kind of notoriety um, as as that's where you go as the kind of the capital of music in London, wasn't it? Denmark Street. I, mean, I, I think it's it's been in slight decline, isn't it, over the years? And I think a lot of them have closed down now. And there used to be a few venues down there as well, didn't there? Live music venues. Yeah, and we, and we we all mourn the live music venues that were there. I mean, you had the twelve bar, which was yeah, which was tiny, but that that was that was basically my back garden for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, and the Astoria, which was a fantastic venue, but in in all fairness, uh, I've I've now seen the plans that they've got in the redevelopment, and it should have happened many years back now, but it's taken a bit longer. But they they're now about to uh, open a new two thousand seat venue to replace the Astoria. And uh, as far as the twelve bar club is concerned, they've actually kind of repieced the the, the the back room brick by brick and just moved the location. So they're they're, they're kind of they've modernised the whole area, but they're trying to preserve some of that um, that authenticity that that kind of existed from the fifties all the way through to the early two thousands. Well, I'm very much looking forward to that uh, happening because um, I think we need point. it. You, we do need it. I mean, I know I was I was up in Camden the other day. And again, a similar similar thing. Um, you know, every other doorway was a, was a live music venue. There was music playing. You know, with maybe a pub with a back room or whatever. But they are gradually all kind of not all of them, but there are a lot of of these iconic venues. You know, that have just kind of closed down. Um, and I know, obviously, I was going to ask you about how you kind of got through the whole lockdown period and everything, because obviously, the, you know, the creatives and the arts and music in particular and the hospitality sector, you know, really badly affected. Um, but you know, I think it was happening before then, Andy. It's been a trend that I've seen since uh, the mid 2000s, for sure. It's, it's, it's hard to kind of gauge with that exact figures, but I feel like one of the things to take on board is that even though there are still still guitar bands happening in, in the younger generations, mm. uh, a lot of the music making practice has kind of moved away from, from live instrumentation. I'm not, I'm not saying it's dead, because it definitely isn't. I know mm. loads, of, loads of guitar players in their teenage years and loads of bands start that way. So... There's not there's not that kind of ferocity that you would have had certainly in in my teenage years where everybody wants to be in a band. Yeah. Um, 
but also I think that with more diversity in terms of what you, you is available to you entertainment wise, um, just general public support for for live music venues has declined. And obviously yeah. the smaller places will, will struggle and they will shut on that account. But it's funny you mentioned Camden because um, I was up there recently, uh, in fact, last week, and I still find it to be one of the places where, where you still see live music venues open. The yeah. West the West End definitely has suffered. Um, and all, all but one or two of the venues there have, have kind of all disappeared. But but Camden, Camden still has still holding the flame as the last bastion, I think. I, w- I would definitely agree because I was I say I was there. I went to a gig, gig up in Camden, and um, with some mutual friends of ours that were playing actually. Um, oh, in Bellevue who's... days, Bell- Bellevue yeah, days, yeah, 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 um, yeah. and I, I went to, see, went to see them. And I was as I was walking up, I got off the tube at uh, Camden Town, and I started walking up uh, was it Chalk Farm Road, whatever it is, um, towards the venue. And I think, especially after coming out, you know, quite recently, what was it in July, wasn't it, when the whole lockdown or well, the the unlocking uh, happened. But as I was walking up the road there, I just got this sense of it was vibrant, it was buzzing, you know, it was it, it, Camden was just alive with everything that could possibly be going on was happening. It was going on, you know, it was busy and there were people having fun and the restaurants were all full um, and the music we went to, and we went to the venue um, and, you know, lots and lots of people going to gigs. I mean, I suppose it was a combination of fantastic. We can get out and do this again, but Camden is, you know, a mecca for, as you say, for, you know, for that, for that kind of, that vibe. Yeah, it really is. I think, for me, there was an experience that I had um, probably about a month ago. We we did a headline show at the Underworld in Camden, and it was it was the first first time I kind of realised that walking out to a packed venue, yeah. that people are really kind of back in terms of in terms of attending gigs. They're kind of really up for it, and that whole apprehension that everybody's had over the last couple of years <clears throat> has started to disappear, which is I, th- I think it's a good thing. We need to move on. <clears throat> not, not, not obviously not at the risk of, of the general population and the health of the people within, but it's just we need to kind of make make inroads to, to live with what we've what we've come to encounter. I think. Yeah, I agree. So you mentioned the bands there that you're that you're playing with and still play with. Uh, you're in a couple yeah. of bands, a couple of bands, aren't you? Uh, Middle Night Men and uh, Rich Ragony and the Digressions. That's the ones. Yeah, that, that's 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 the two active bands that I'm in at the moment. And you're the guitarist in those, are you? Or do you, do you sing well, as well, Andy? I do backing vocals in both. I've, I've never been a frontman. I'm not. I'm not up for that. It's too much responsibility. So <laughs> yeah. I'm quite happy just doing just warbling in the background. But um, so I, I play guitar with the Midnight Men, but with Rich Ragney, I play keys in that one. I'm I'm, I'm the piano player. Okay. Um, yeah. And that was that was kind of what's weird with both those projects. I, I wasn't part of the band until I'd actually produced their records, and I really. I, I, I don't like getting involved when producing a record to, to, to be a credit whore. And what I mean by that is I don't want to play guitar or play this, that, and the other over the record just for the sake of it. If you've got a band of good musicians, you get them to do it and you get them to realise what you're all looking at in terms of production. Yeah. Um, but certainly with Rich Ragney and the Digressions, um, he asked me to do a couple of keyboard bits on there. So like, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. And then, uh, you know, a few months after that, it's like, can you join a band? I was like, well, you've already got a guitar player. So I'm like, well, you can play keys. I'm not a keyboard player, bud. Um, <laughs> he's like, no, go on. Was, and do you know what? I, he's, he's a lovely guy. He's very charismatic. So I kind of thought, yeah, do you know what? I'll give this a shot. Yeah. And um, it just it's it's sort of the best part of me for two three months. Really, really going back to to to, to basics to school myself on how to play keyboards. Here is the Middle Night Men with Heroin Heights.
And that was fun. That was a real kind of um, that was that was a real adventure. Yeah, and it keeps, your hand in, and it keeps your hand in as well, of course. You know, with playing live music, you know, as a at the heart of everything. Obviously, you're a music you're a musician, um, mm. and what you do in the studio. So, do you do you enjoy uh, which side of the desk more, or is it a kind of fifty fifty split, whether you're behind the desk or whether you're on stage? Um, if it's either side of the glass, I'll be honest with you. I, I love producing records. <clears throat> for, for me, the, the most fun part of it is when you're actually with the artist or with the band and you're doing the recording side stuff. <clears throat> Mixing-wise, I love doing and, and, and editing and marshalling, but that's a very solitary process when it comes down to it. But yeah. as far as actually, you know, when, when the ideas are flowing and people, you, you, quite, you know, you have a basic song with a chord progression and a vocal and you start to embellish it with bells and whistles and BVs and percussion and yeah. samples and everything. It just, that, that's, that's where it's at for me. Do you find that 
the artist or the band or whoever you've got in your studio uh, have a very clear idea about what they want the ultimate end sound you know, to be like? Or do they take guidance from you? Or do you advise us to, well, you know, I'd take that in a different direction or maybe key changes or whatever it might be, you know, to kind of get the best possible product. I mean, are they, are most artists and, and songwriters and, you know, musicians happy for you to, to pitch in and say, oh, I'd advise this, or do, or do they have a very clear idea about what they want? I, th I think it's, it's, it's very 50-50 there, because on, on one side of, 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 the, of the coin you've got, I work with a band, um, and they might not have a clear idea, but they, they, they like to experiment, so kind of the, the production hat gets passed to them. Yeah. Um, one of those examples is probably Wonk Unit. I don't know if you're familiar with these guys, um, but Alex, Alex, he'll write the songs at home. We'll get into the studio, and really, we'll sit there and, and we'll just we'll try some really crazy stuff out, and he'll just keep on going and do this, that, the other. Um, right at the other end of the spectrum, I'll have a band come in, and they they will defer to me on every every decision, mm -hmm. and 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 also it'll be down to me to to suggest that. We, we put some BVs in here, we put some guitar licks in here, we did, you know. So and, and it's, it, there's never kind of one size fits all amongst it. Um, so I, I suppose, yeah, that's that's the beauty of creativity though, isn't it? I, I think, you know, because you, isn't it, isn't it great? It's like having a piece of clay in your hands and, you know, this is going to end up, we don't know what it's going to look like eventually, but it's it's molding it and, and getting it to the best it could possibly be. Oh, it's Friday night. We're all right. We are. Friday night, I got a pocket full of dough and have a look at this mate, watch my feet move at the disco, there's some friends at the disco, disco fever, disco fever, always been a true believer, disco fever, disco fever, watch me move at the right of Shiny shoes and no mother's mother can beat my moves at the disco fever. Disco fever, always been a true believer. Disco fever, disco fever. Watch me move, lover. right? featuring Isaac Holman from Slaves and Disco Fever. I think so. I think so. I think I think one key factor that plays into that is, is managing expectations because obviously budget is always a thing that needs to be taken into account. Yeah. So if I've got a band that, that when, when they first contact me, they, they were in a day, I kind of, I kind of know where their, their production values lie because it, it's, it's, it, it's kind of, it, it's not possible to get a big glitzy, glammy thing happening with four songs in one day. I mean, but if they want to just smash out like a live, live, um, you know, like a live record or a, a, a live appraisal of what it is they do, then we can definitely do that. You, yeah. you go down the whole Steve Albini approach whereby it literally it's just set the mics up, let the band play. If they like it, that's done. I mean, he's a, he's a very backseat producer, that guy. Yeah. I st studied with him for a little while and he's, um, it's interesting to see his approach in action. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I think you, 
I suppose you have to put your trust and faith in um, professional producers who know what they're listening to. I'll, I'll give you an example. As a, as a songwriter, I entered a songwriting comp uh, competition mm. uh, and they said, they made it quite clear. Um, I don't know how many people actually stuck to the, the actual brief. Um, but what they said was uh, just an acoustic demo, right? So a demo to me, I mean, I, well, from what I, my understanding of it is a demo is an example of what the song um, you know, the kind of the song structure, the lyrics and everything else that goes with it. And if when you play that to a producer, they'll be able to see the bigger picture and, and hear what that could sound like with added, um, you know, instrumentation, BVs, as you say, and all that sort of stuff to kind yeah. of from, from listening to an acoustic demo, they can hear what that final product may sound like. And then you've got the other view where if you put a demo in front of somebody, it almost has to be like radio ready with all that stuff in it. Um, so I suppose there are two schools of thought there, but I was quite disappointed that when I when I actually went back and heard some of the some of the other submissions, you know, for this contest, they, it sounded like it was, it was like a fully mastered track, and I thought, well, that wasn't the brief. The, the brief was an acoustic demo, which is what I which is what I put forward. Mm. Uh, so I suppose there are two views on what what a demo actually is. I, I I I've been here before as well, and I think I think you've already answered what what my kind of statement on it would be. It literally the, the job of a producer, and I've had this myself. Like a, a client will send over, even a, it's like a voice memo, just playing guitar and a bit of acoustic, and you do listen to it, and you kind of realise at that point where other stuff needs to go in, yeah. Because it, it just it kind of writes itself. It's very 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 self illustrative in that respect. Mm. But I would say that's sending it to a producer. But I do think when you're sending stuff out to industry, and let, let's be honest here, not everybody in the music industry is actually that musical. No. We have to remember that. So, if you're sending stuff off to management or A and R, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not painting everybody with the same brush here, but of a fully realised demo, then I, th I think you're, you're you're really giving yourself an advantage there. Whereas yeah. if it is just g guitar and vocal, and I, I completely appreciate the fact that you're saying at this competition, that's all they asked for. So that's what I would have done. Yeah, um, yeah, that's what I did. But, but I, don't, I don't know. How, as I say, I don't know how how true they stuck to it. You know, with that because obviously. You know, competition was just open, to, you know, to, to anybody. There was, a, there was, but you know, I think given the brief there, I mean, if I was to do it again, I'd make sure that my demo was like fully mastered, you know, proper radio ready, basically. Um, yeah. To get to do the song justice, you know. But what my point is is that as a, you know, if you're like you say, not I appreciate not everybody is has got that ear of of a, of a producer. So uh, whoever I don't even know who was on the judging panel, but for example, you know, if if you hear something for the first time um, and typically A&R used to give you what, 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And if you haven't, you haven't grabbed them or your chorus isn't in there within the first 45 seconds. It's like next. So uh, it's, it's a tricky one. It is. It is. But uh, yeah, like, like I say, it's, it's like, you just, you need to know who, who you're sending it to. And yeah. the unfortunate truth is you, you can't kind of preempt that, what the musicality of the, but it, it's, it's, I think I'm, I'm lucky to kind of exist in a situation here whereby if I get sent an acoustic demo, um, they're not just sending that as a demo to me. They're, they're kind of sending it with, with to start a conversation, and that is yeah. to be, what do you think should happen to this? Where so this I, go? Yeah. Straight away, I'm, I'm listening to it from a point of view. It's like, oh, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. And it's exciting. Um, whereas on the other side of things, if someone sends me a, kind of like a fully laid out demo, it becomes a lot more matter of fact. I'm not saying I don't get into it, because I do. I, 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 love, I love my work. But at the same time, if they've got all the parts laid out, then it's, you know, my job's well, kind job, of already half done. done. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We just got again and we got to track it and just, you know, tidy stuff up. That's all it is. Yeah. Um, Stephen, just to go back, I, I, you asked me the question of which, which side of the glass I prefer. Yeah, yeah, so, sorry. I, yeah. I love, no, no, no. Just, I, just, I don't want to leave, I don't, I don't leave any stone unturned, but the whole thing, um, I love the studio work, but I honestly, if somebody else is pushing the buttons and I'm behind the glass and I'm recording guitar or, or from doing vocals, then... I'm not so keen on that, and it's just a performance issue. But you talked about the live stuff. I, I love being on stage at the moment, yeah. and um, I've started going to blues jams recently, and that's just kind of reignites something that I used to do in my teenage years. And that, and it's, it's the whole thing about improvisation. But what what I've what I've kind of learned from going to these blues jams is that um, the nerves still exist. And I, I think if you if you get if you get to a point where you get on stage and you're not nervous before going on it's time to stop because that, that kind of, that kick of adrenaline, I don't see anywhere else in my life that I can, I can no, get. 
I totally 100% agree with that. I mean, I mean, I, just, I was, I was, well, I am a bit of a late starter in it, and um, in, in this whole music thing, it was one of those things that never actually got around to doing in my sort of, you know, um, you know, I was over 50 when I first picked up a guitar, and now I just haven't put it down since because I'm try, trying to make up for lost time. But you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the buzz that I get from, you know, playing and we've now just we're just doing a covers band. Um, we're getting out with it, we're getting regular gigs. But what I find is that, you know, I, I just go to another place, you know, when, I, when we're playing, like even rehearsals, I go to the studio. I find it quite, find it quite difficult to like to get to sleep afterwards because I'm still absolutely buzzing oh, from, yeah. from oh, yeah. doing that, you know, and I, was, I, I can't just sort of come home from, from band practice and just go to bed because there's something in me that's kind of whirring around, you know, like as Billy Elliot described, it's like, you know, electricity. Yeah. And, you know, and it, I do get an absolute buzz from it. We did a gig on Saturday night, actually. And isn't it such a thrill when, you know, you, you turn up and the band get going and then people just gravitate towards it. And we had, you know, we had a whole moth pit going in front of us. And it was absolutely fantastic. Because I just don't think you can replicate that feeling. Um, no, no, believe it believe it or not, I think I saw some video clips of this, Stephen. So this was the, this was the railway, right? Yeah, uh, we, we did a Halloween. It was a Halloween gig that they wanted. I, to I saw a couple of clips online and, and the, your audience were going batshit crazy. Right. Absolutely crazy, which was which made us even, you know, play, you know, out of our skin, really. I mean, it was such a good, it was a different, it, actually, the first set, I think we started a bit early, because I'd be interested in your, on live music. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, I think it's coming back, and I think that pubs, we, we, we've got no shortage of gigs coming up, where, in fact, we've, we've got almost like a package that we can do. Um, I might as well put my pitch in and my plug in now, hadn't I, for, oh, of course, for, yeah, for yeah, Vasonic. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so they asked us to do some two hours of, of live music, uh, and it's like you know all the bangers, you know indie indie rock stuff that we do covers. Yeah, you know Kings of Leon, Killers, and Oasis, and Blur, and all all the all the um, you know the, the, the real crowd pleasing hits. Um, and then, but we also did like a, a it was almost like a, an indie rock DJ set afterwards. So we 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 put on so you know as a, as a an entertainment package, you know it's like four hours of two hours live music performance followed by, um, you know. A, a DJ set, which 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 went down an absolute storm. So, um, and I think you know, getting people back into pubs, and I think a lot of pubs now are actually looking at live music, live entertainment, as long as they've got the space to do it, of course. But I think it's it's you've got to leave it till after nine o'clock, I think, because we started at eight o'clock on Saturday and it was too early. You know, the people weren't ready for it. They wanted to basically chill out, have their happy hour, whatever they're doing, and and then at nine o'clock when the live music starts, they're bang up for it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one actually because I think it depends on on the venue that you're doing. Um, I, I have to find with 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 pub gigs, as it were, the late the later starts definitely work. But when you're when you're doing stuff in a, in a dedicated venue, yeah, yeah, particularly when a lot of matches have really early curfews. Because I think I'm thinking of um, some 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 gigs that I did on a recent tour, whereby kind of it is apparently a music venue, but then at eleven o'clock or or eleven thirty, it turns into a club night. So yeah. there's a curfew for everything. So every thing comes and runs from like 7 p.m. But they're the sort they were the sort of gigs where people have bought their tickets in advance specifically to come and see those bands. I want to go back to the um creativity, um, Andy. Um yep. and the fact that I saw that you were um what was it, the 2020 you were shortlisted as a finalist for the University of Westminster Alumni Awards for contribution to creative industries, which I think you know, so congratulations <laughs> with that. Thank you um, very much. And yeah, you are now you are now a full voting member for the Grammys. I thought, what? I, yes. Wow. Yeah, that, so, what does that involve then? And how, how did that all come about? So, so, so Grammy, Grammy. Um, sorry, Academy membership. Sorry, Recording Academy membership. That's the the official title is Recording Academy, not Grammys. But everyone says Grammys. So, yeah. membership membership comes by um, um, invitation, and for invitation, you need to be referred by existing members or or by somebody of note so there's a guy that i met at a um uh, at a, a function a few years back and we got you know it was it was like a recording engineers function we got chatting and turns out he was working for brian adams at the time and i was i was started talking about what i was doing with, with status quo or with francis rossi at the time so we kind of hit it off and then um he said he sent through a recommendation for me last year i was like okay that's thank you very much it's great so that's one person I knew in the academy. Um, so then I kind of didn't have anybody else to, to, go, to, to, to go to. So I politely asked Francis Rossi to do me a recommendation. So that was that was my two my two votes to get in. 
So when, when you're in the academy, it kind of opens up a lot of doors um, in terms of membership and affiliations and networks. Bearing in mind, it's, it's very much uh, an American-based society, even though they've got uh, international membership, but it, it was all kind of based in America. So if you if you find that you're, you're, you're doing a fair bit of travel, which I was doing for a bit before uh, lockdown, um, it just means that you get to meet people in the industry out there. And it's we, we've, we're, what, 67 million thereabouts in the UK? Yeah. I think one of the things, and this is this is one of the reasons a lot, a lot of um, artists always tra- chase the American dollars, like you've got a population of somewhat like 355 million out there. So it's, it's such a vast market. Um, yeah. So it, it really kind of it does help to have um, your fingers in pies over there as well. Yeah. Um, but essentially, we, we, the membership means that you you vote for for the, for the Grammys when, when it comes around, which is actually now the the voting for the for the twenty twenty two Grammys finishes uh, on this coming Friday. So I've, I've actually got a couple of records that I've worked in worked on over here in the UK that that are up for nominations. This is Rich Ragony and the Digressions with December in my heart. So Andy, uh, back to the live music performance side of things. Then, with the bands that you that you play with, are you quite active at the moment, or have you got any gigs coming up? Yeah, it's towards it's been, Christmas or December. It's it's been very active uh, this this part of the year. So 
There's a few more gigs coming up before December. Um, that's both with the Midnight Men and also with the Digressions. With the Midnight Men, we've been on tour recently with Terrorvision and with the Wild Hearts. But we've got two more shows coming up. So that's um, that's on the 11th of December. We'll be at the Brudenell Social Club in Leeds. And then the final one is at Nottingham Rock City with the Wild Hearts, which is I'm quite looking forward to playing because I've never actually been to that venue. And it, obviously, it's legendary. And yeah, what, sort of, what sort of capacity is that then there? I don't know. I'm, off the top of my head, I think it's, it, it's around about 12, 1500 maybe. Yeah. Good. But that's, but I could be wrong. I, I, will, I, will, I will do a recce and I'll come back <laughs> and you know. Yeah. But, but straight after that, after the 15th, I'll get back with the Midnight Men and the 16th and 17th. We've got two sellout shows in London. Uh, the first one's supporting Warner E. Hodges, which is a, he's a fantastic uh, blues rock player from Nashville. And he comes over, he tours once a year. And then on the 17th, I'm, Again, it's with the digressions, and we're supporting Ginger Wildheart, who's the the singer of the Wild Hearts, and that's with cool. his 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 alternate country band, which is Ginger Wildheart and the Sinners. And then nice it's time one. to time to break up for Christmas. Yeah, well, I think I'm gonna I'll try and make at least one of those, Andy. Um, Wonderful, that'd be really cool. Actually, I'd love love to come and see, you know see see you play live. That'd be that'd be awesome. Fantastic. That yeah, be, be good to see you there, Stephen. Definitely, yeah, I'll definitely do that and uh, introduce myself properly because we haven't met, but we must, I must meet you one day. Um, I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop you there because we have met. We have um, met. Have we? If you're, if you're who I think you are. So, um, were you down at the Rose and Crown a few weeks back? Yes, I was. Oh, I did meet you at the bar. And you were playing. So that, you're the singer with um, Sam Christmas, right? That's right. Yeah. So Sam plays guitar in the band. Yeah. So actually, the way that came about that was with Chloe Ray, wasn't it? Yeah. I think you've worked with. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. I beg your pardon. Right. I said we haven't met. I, um, was, I was a gentleman in the cap who arrived very late, but managed to catch a oh, set. Uh, yeah. I, I remember complimenting you on your wonderful voice. Thank Great. you very much. Yes, we have met. Gosh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah. So I, that, the way that came about, that was quite quite uh, amusing, actually. We uh, we were actually in the rehearsal studio at Crunch, um, just on a, on a sort of normal band practice night. And I think Chloe called Tom, the, the bass player. Um, and said about coming down to the open mic because I think some of the lads had done some sort of you know singer songwriter stuff down there uh, the last time it was on. Yeah. And um, so we said, oh well, yeah, we'll come down. But can we play as a band? So you know, we, so we we basically I think we got on towards the end of the evening, but we played as well. The, Alan was away, but we you know the four of us basically took a bass amp down there and we, and we did like four or five of our. Uh, <laughs> covers uh which went down well with the audience didn't it actually as i was saying earlier and we got everybody up and everybody was kind of you know dancing around and having a good time but it was, it was the most bizarre open mic i've ever been to um it was great it was first great. time i've ever done it as a band yeah it was really good and uh i was, I was quite taken back with sam christmas's uh backing vocals as well i've seen him i've seen him in other bands before yeah like the, the guy has a set of pipes on him it's really he good. does yeah he does yeah he's um I'm trying to I'm trying to convince him to sing Sex on Fire actually because I'm really struggling with that. <laughs> but yes, he has he has got uh, he's great great boy. I mean, he's a brilliant guitarist as well. You know, yeah, absolute yeah. guitar hero. But uh, and, and such a nice lad as well. They're all great lads. You know, I mean, they're all thirty years younger than me. Um, but you know, it's, I'm the sort of elder statesman, and um, you know, got this idea that I just want to. And it's fantastic that the way they've just kind of, you know, backed me and and. Um, accepted me into into this sort of local music scene you know which, which is which is i just love it absolutely love it it's do you know it's a funny thing i think the public might have a different opinion but i think when you talk to musicians and creatives i don't think um music has any age no i agree no? i agree yeah um so I've, I've got, yeah, yeah i've got you know two or three years i think and i'll do it and then i'll then i'll maybe sort of you know tick tick that box but for the moment I'm absolutely, you know, living the dream, absolutely loving it, you know, absolutely. getting out, getting lots of geeks and stuff. Yeah. All right, Andy. So honestly, it's been uh, so well, we have established that we have met. Yes, I, I, yeah. do, I do now remember. Um, but I didn't catch your name, though. That's what it was. So uh, otherwise, I would have known. No, not a problem. I, I, I yeah. don't think I gave it. I just wanted to congratulate you on a great set. That was all it was. It's Thank you. That was that's really kind of you. So we've probably come to the end of the time that we have available yeah. on the podcast. So uh, without further ado as they say i'd like to say thank you very much andy brooks for joining me on the feeling of sonic podcast it's been great chatting to you uh, and we've covered quite a lot and we've got some interesting uh, things and i think it'll make for a, a great episode absolute pleasure mr connor nice to chat with you you too good to see you and uh, well good to talk to you and i'll hopefully see you again very soon all the best thank you cheers mate my thanks again to andy for joining me as my guest 
My name is Stephen Connor, and you have been listening to the Feeling for Sonic podcast. Until next time, keep calm, stay safe, and God bless. <laughs>